Welcome to the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I'm Deborah Herlax Enos, a small town girl turned TV nutritionist and healthy living expert. I design health programs for the average guy or gal, including those average guys named Metallica. On September 1st, 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I asked every oncologist the same question, why did I get cancer? But none of my doctors had good answers for me. I wanted answers and that's why I started this podcast. I want to help you to lower your cancer risk and provide self-care tips for those in the battle. I'm getting answers and I want to share them with you. Who would have ever thought I'd be talking to an archaeologist about how to prevent cancer? But I tell you, today's podcast is fascinating where I literally talk to uh, what I call the Indiana Jones of food. (laughs) Um, Dr. Bill Schindler has had a special on National Geographic. He's written a book called How to Eat Like a Human. And many of my questions to him were, how do we prevent chronic disease and cancer based on the research he's done by following different types of indigenous peoples all over the world? So my big takeaway with Dr. Schindler is when he told me that our gut is 60% smaller than it should be to get optimal nutrient density from our food. So what do we do? And then he started talking about basically like how our great, great grandparents ate and what they had to do to process their food so that they could get more nutrient density out of it. This might be things like fermentation, you know, making sourdough bread or eating buying sourdough bread your farmer's market. He was telling me that it's literally impossible to get enough nutrients without using some of these techniques like fermentation. Listen to today's podcast where Bill takes us through a lot of interesting techniques, um, how to shop at your supermarket, how to shop at your local farmer's market, all in an effort to prevent disease. Okay, Dr. Bill Schindler, we met a year ago at my National Nutrition Conference. I loved our conversation. And I always kind of start a podcast by saying, I'm super excited because I am that person. But can I now say I'm super excited on steroids? Because I want to know, what can an archaeologist teach me about not getting cancer again? (laughs) Well, I am super excited as well. I am super excited as well. So, you know, it is so... That's a, a fantastic question because... I have been searching my entire life to learn how to nourish myself and more recently, obviously, how to nourish my family and and really more recently nourish the community. And I never realized that my interest and all of my training in archaeology was going to be the key to all the answers I was looking for. Isn't that just so crazy? I mean, I'd like to dive in, too, with you've always had food challenges. Mm -hmm. Then you became a wrestler um, wrestling division one. And we all know, I mean, we've all known some wrestlers in our lives. Their relationship with food is pretty horrendous. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Especially, you know, it's a little bit better now because a lot of the regulations the NCA regulations have changed for the better. But in, in the early nineties, when I was wrestling, it was horrid. In fact, my third year in college, I think three college wrestlers died, not from my team, but three, three different teams. Um, three kids died from, from weight, cutting weight related issues. Yeah. Gosh. And so I would imagine because you've had kind of a, you know, a challenging, um, that's very nice way of saying it, a challenging relationship with food pretty much your entire life. Is that what 
drove you into archaeology, which connect the dots for us? How does that even happen? No, it was actually, I, I, there, were, there were two tracks that were running throughout my entire life. One was hmm. you know, this incredibly unhealthy relationship with food, battling with my weight, and later on with all sorts of metabolic disease, and loving to cook, loving, you know, trying to learn how to feed my, all that is happening on one side. And the other side was this sort of back to nature, you know, my dad had me hunting and fishing and trapping and camping all the time. Um, you know, and I was, I was connecting with my environment and, and he loved trying to collect arrow. Actually together, we've still never found an arrowhead. I mean, I found as an archeologist many, but he, he and I together would walk fields looking for things. Um, and when I was a kid, we had no idea what we were looking for, but this sort of love for the past, love for history, love for prehistory, love for the outdoors was happening as a, a, another track. And I know it sounds so strange today because, you know, our, our understanding of our need, necessity to connect with food, um, our understanding of the, the power of what ancestral diets can tell us, things like, you know, importance of things like grounding, for example, like that was not you know, in my mindset uh, for, you know, in the 70s and the 80s when I was growing up. And, and so I'm doing both of these things and, and thinking the entire time they were two completely different tracks. And it wasn't until you know, almost 20 years ago that I realized that they needed to come together and they, and they really meld together very, very well. And the answers I tried, I've done South beach, I've done weight watchers. I've done, I've done all just about any major diet um, that I've done and, and none of it ever felt right. And it wasn't until I started to connect all those other parts of my life and my interests that um, I really got those answers or at least started to get the answers. And, can you say now that you enjoy eating, enjoy <laughs> I, your food? I enjoy every part of eating, but just as important, you know, every part of it. I getting my food, meeting farmers, processing food, cooking food, sharing food, sitting down at a table, and that's what real true nourishment is all about. For most of my life, I thought, okay, tell me the you know how much protein and fat and carbohydrates and vitamin A and vitamin D and all these things that I need in my food, and and I'm going to be healthy. And what I what I've more uh, come to realize, obviously, much more recently, is truly nourishing yourself is meeting your biological requirements, but also as humans, meeting our cultural requirements, our emotional requirements. All of those things together is what true nourishment is all about. And until you can connect with your food properly and have that healthy relationship with food, it, it, it's it's unattainable. I love that so much, and you you you've used the word nourish. Yeah. How many people actually think yeah. about nourishing themselves when they're on, you know, some sort of, you know, this diet and that diet, South Beach and keto and intermittent fasting? Not that those aren't, you know, viable options for many people, but are you looking at food as friend or foe? And, and that mindset is so important. I mean, one of the things, one of the first things that I found uh, when I really started to understand our ancestral dietary past wells is obviously there's so many differences between how we were eating thousands of years ago and how we eat today in the modern industrial food system. But one of them is um, there, there was a great study and I haven't been able to find it since I read it. I kind of read it, set it aside and I've never been able to find it, but it was about eight or nine years ago. And the study, if I remember correctly, looked at uh, a whole bunch of American grocery stores. And what they found was that something like 85% of the 
advertising on packaged food boasted about what the food doesn't have in it. Like the advertising that was marketed to the consumer was what isn't in the food. It's either fat free or low sodium or low sugar and low whatever. And many of those things we shouldn't have in our diets. It's not the point. But the point was the marketing was looking, you know, when you when we decide how we're going to be shopping to feed ourselves and our families, we're looking for food that's absent of something. And the reality is in the past, you know, when people were, when our ancestors were just figuring out how to feed themselves and creating technologies to exploit different nutrients from the environment, it was always the exact opposite. How can I get the most amount of nutrition while my body is doing the least amount of work? The, the mindset today is, hey, how can I get the least amount of stuff from my food while my body is working really, really hard? I mean, how many people have heard the, we can eat lettuce because if we eat lettuce, our, our, our bodies, you know, our digestive tract has to work harder than the calories that they actually get from the lettuce. So we're actually going to lose weight getting lettuce. Or how many people go to the gym so that they can just burn calories so they can eat more food? And, and it's, a, it's the exact opposite of the way that we've been thinking about how to approach food for 99.9% of the time we've been on this planet. Okay. that And that completely makes sense. And I would imagine if our focus is on what this doesn't have, we're not focused on what it does have and what it can do for us. Right. And, and, and it isn't to say that we shouldn't, it isn't to say the things that some of those things, we shouldn't have sugar in our diet, that sort of thing. But if the, if the if your entire focus on on your, your worldview and how you should be eating is focused on making sure your food doesn't have stuff in it and your low calories and low fat and low this and low that, then uh, you know it's it, it's first of all it's an unhealthy relationship with food. But you're never going to get the kind of nourishment you're looking for. My one of the things that helped me lose a massive ton of weight and really get healthy for the first time in my life was to completely turn that on its head. Think about food the way we've been thinking about food for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. How can I get the most amount of nourishment out of this food? And most importantly, not and it isn't just food choice. Part of it's food choice. But the difference about from humans to other animals is that we process our food before it goes into our mouths. And we have to because we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. So just because food has nutrients in it, doesn't mean that when you put it into your mouth, it goes where it needs to go into your bodies. And in fact, quite a bit of the nutrition that we put into our mouths as, as modern humans, because it hasn't been prepared properly, passes directly through our digestive tract and goes right out of our body. So part of it is food choice. But one of the things that I'm very, very focused on, and this is where the archaeology comes in, is what kinds of techniques, technologies, strategies can I use and have we used for a very long time to take this raw material, this resource, whether it's a plant, animal, whatever it is, and maximize the bioavailability and the nutrients in that food so my body can make the most use of it. Okay. So I'm also wondering if this kind of dovetails with things that you talk about on your website, like fermentation um, and different ways we use to process food, if we're looking at it from an ancestral you know, basically what our great grandparents used to eat. Is that kind of where you're going with us? It, it's exactly where I'm going. So there's, there's two things that, so the, the, the direct link between archaeology and all my other interests and, and, and food and diet and health turns out to be, and, and it happened when I made the realization that almost every single prehistoric technology has something to do with food. And, and we've been in, our ancestors have been inventing tools for, as far as we know right now, the current estimate is 3.3 million years and for 3.3 million years, almost every single prehistoric technology ever invented 
has something to do with food, getting food, processing food, storing food, cooking food, sharing food, redistributing food, whatever. And, you know, and if that's true, I mean, a tech, and we know that our changing diets over time uh, made a, a direct impact on how we evolved over time, our body size, our brain size, all of this. So certainly understanding diet and our dietary path for millions of years is important to unlocking some key information we need to understand how to nourish ourselves today. But if technology, the technologies used to access food and make food safe, is that directly related to how our diets change? And we must understand those at the same time. And what I focused the past 20 years of my work on is, okay, how, what were those technologies and how do we apply them today? Because we've lost much of them. Fermentation is, is a fantastic example. You know, vegetables, Vegetables have nutrients in them. They do. Whether or not you want to be a carnivore and suggest that plants don't have any nutrients, or, or plants have toxins as well too, but plants do have nutrients. The part that people really aren't talking about is that though many of those nutrients are in some sort of a state for our digestive tract working alone, uh, it can't, can't access them or can't access them very easily in many cases. So Doing things to that food, the plant, depending on uh, how the, what those nutrients are, how they're locked up, um, how toxic the plant is, uh, technologies play a crucial role in making that plant safe for us to eat and the nutrients in that plant available to our bodies. F depending on the plant and the toxin, things like fermentation can be a game changer. Sometimes it's as simple as drying. Sometimes it's as simple as cooking. In, in, in terms of something, uh, in, in terms of maize, maize is the maize or corn is the most difficult grain in the world for the human body to, to, to completely digest and fully get all the nutrients from. A fantastic example is anybody listening has had this issue with you realize it or not, but if you've eaten corn on the cob in the summer, you see it the next day in, in, in the toilet, and whole kernels of corn. I mean, you should. So, uh, and, 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 and that is just an example of how difficult that grain is. And that's like a macroscopic example. You see it, but from a nutrient level, many of the nutrients in maize, you know, it doesn't matter if you cook it, grind it up. It doesn't, the only, there's only one technology that makes all the nutrients in maize available to our bodies. It's an ancient technology known as nishtamalization. These technologies are game changers when it comes to nutrition. Hmm. Okay, so then hundreds, thousands of years ago, people people employed different types of processing because food was still a little bit processed, of course, and our bodies had a better opportunity to get as much nutrient density out of the food as it could. So mm -hmm. then today, we're not doing that. No, and, and here's, the, here's the big problem. I, I need to find another word. Food processing, the term, is, is the right word. But food processing today is, is an evil term. I mean, it, it, we process food. It, it is. To the, modern industrial food, to, to the modern industrial food system machine, food processing means um, making somebody else a heck of a lot of money on the, on the backs of our own health. And the only thing that they're focused on is shelf life or uniformity or the ability to, to ship foods, you know, around the world or extract certain, that, that's what food processing today is focused on. And unfortunately it's almost always at the expense of the, the, the very things that the goals that food processing in the past were focused on things like nutrient density or bioavailability or safety in our foods. Those things are compromised with most of the modern food processing today. But the food processing that I'm talking about, complete nose to tail approaches to animals, uh, fermenting, nishtamalizing, slicing, grinding, all of those kind of things, cooking the right way is, is, is necessary for humans. The only, one of the, one of the traps we get caught in, 
um, and not truly understanding how incredibly inefficient our digestive tracts are as, as these as modern humans and these huge bodies with these huge nutrient needy brains and these really tiny guts. I mean, we our guts are sixty percent the size that they should be for us. You know, they aren't a similar size primate. Um, is that we outgrew our digestive tract. We started to do it. We started making all these different technologies and we're relying on doing these things to our food before we put them into our mouths. It is literally impossible to fully nourish ourselves without implementing some of these technologies. Um, but they're, 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 they're crucial. We absolutely need them. And it, every one of these things might not make a huge difference. If we don't just tomalize our maze, not a very big deal. If we don't fully for some people, if we don't fully, you know, do a long wild uh, fermentation on our wheat versus a real sourdough, it's maybe not the end of the world. If, if maybe um, somebody isn't doing a complete nose to tail approach on all their animals, it's not necessarily the end of the world. But the problem is it's in every part of our, our food system today. Like the, the, the lack of proper processing and utilization of our resources is happening at every, everywhere we turn around. And it's just compounding year after year, decade after decade in our lives. And it becomes a huge problem. And so we're not as nutrient dense. Our bodies uh, were nutrient deficient compared to maybe where we were a couple hundred years ago. Although we have access to such a huge variety of food by going to the supermarket, farmer's market, you name it. But it sounds like we're living in a lack of nutrient density in our body. 100%. And that diversity in our food is, and it's almost, it's a guise. It's, it's not true. I mean, one of the great, I don't know if you ever saw, what is it? Um, uh, I forget the name of the movie. It's about 15 years old now. It's a great documentary on food. Uh, I, Michael Pollan was in it and, and Joel Salz. It was a fan. I forget what it was called. Great, fantastic documentary. But, but the beginning of it, they're, they're pushing a cart to the grocery store and the narrator was saying, you know, this looks so diverse. I mean, look at all the packaging. It's really all the same thing. It's just packaged differently. I mean, it's all corn. It's all corn. I mean, it's all really basically the same thing. That diversity really isn't true nutritional diversity. A great example is, um, you know, if you, if you take an animal in, in, in our country right now, we eat approximately 55% of a pig and 50% of a cow. If you weigh the animal and then weigh what actually goes on the grocery store shelves, it's about half. Now, that meat, flesh, is, flesh of animals is more nutrient-dense and bioavailable than any plant on the planet. But from a nutri- if nutrient density and bioavailability are important to the conversation, and I, and I, I believe they are, it is the least, one of the least nutrient-dense parts of an animal. The most nutrient-dense bioavailable part of an animal is the blood, the fat, and the organs. And that's not on our grocery store shelves uh, hardly at all anymore. Yeah, it is really not. And I interviewed a cancer researcher about a year ago, and um, she was saying, you know, you want to prevent cancer, eat more organ meat. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought, how do I sell this? You know, like... People, people are just not. Now, I grew up eating organ meat because my family um, is from the Pyrenees area oh. of France, of French Basque, and nothing went to waste. We were farmers. If I don't have food in my fridge, 
I can go hangry, get hangry really quickly. So here's my pro tip is I always have a good amount of ground beef in my freezer and in my refrigerator. If it's in your freezer, it's super easy to defrost and I can put dinner together so fast. Uh, here's how I used to prep it back in the day when I had like almost no budget for protein. I would cook up a pound of ground beef, then I would add refried beans to it or black beans to it and mix it up, maybe add a little bit of onion or some garlic. And all of a sudden, my one pound of ground beef had grown into like a pound and a half. It's got additional protein, which I love. It's got a great hit of fiber, which I also love. Most Americans are fiber deficient. And it's going to have a good dose of nutrients. So here's a great deal that's going to help you to do all of these things from my friends at ButcherBox. So they have a great special going on right now. And what it is, is if you sign up with my link using the code ENOS, you can get two pounds of ground beef per month for free for an entire year. If ground beef isn't your thing, you can get three pounds of chicken or a pound of premium steak tips. And honestly, you know how I feel about ButcherBox. I love that they know where the protein comes from. They use great animal husbandry, husbandry techniques. And again, I just, I'm just really happy that this company is sponsoring this podcast. They, are, they really do a great job. So go to the show notes. You're going to get my link. You're going to get the coupon code. And I hope you enjoy the protein as much as I do. I want to go back to a comment you made that we have basically outgrown our digestive tract. Can you expand on that? Sure. So think about what's happening over the past several million years. And I know it's, it's, it's hard to even think in terms of millions of years, but, to, but basically when we go back three and a half million years, our ancestors were about three and a half feet tall and their brains were about the size of my fist. So their nutritional requirements were incredibly low compared to ours to fuel and maintain and nourish the bodies and the brains of that size didn't require much. They had absolutely no technology. So imagine going outside um, with just your fingers and your teeth and your toes and your muscles and your eyesight and your speed or lack of speed and collecting food. There's very little you can get. So there's, and, and don't, and one, one thing I want to make sure people do or don't do is don't fall into the trap of saying, okay, our hunter gatherer ancestors, it was like they walked into the produce section of the grocery store and could just start gathering plants. No, that's not the case. You know, first off in a grocery store today, you know, there's no seasons any longer. So there's a lot of plants in that grocery store that wouldn't be available, right? First of all, they're all domesticated, but in the grocery store, but also they're being shipped in from Argentina and wherever else. So um, if you're only collecting food from your local area, you are by default eating hyper seasonally and hyper locally. So there's only a limited amount of plants that are around you that are in the right state that you can eat them. And most of those plants have toxins in them that you can't detoxify because you have no technologies to do this. So it's not like, you know, this garden of Eden and all these plants and fruits are here and you're going to, the fruits themselves are much smaller. Most of them are bitter. They have a much lower calorie content than anything we see in the grocery stores today. Almost any of the green things are too toxic to eat. So there's a very limited amount of vegetables and fruits that are available and the majority of the nutrition in our ancestors diets were coming from insects so they're eating a bunch of bugs and a little bit of fruits and vegetables then and this works for them they're small and they got little brains and it's fine then imagine that that's your diet right 
then they start creating tools. And these first tools of three and a half million years ago are used, we know for sure they're being used to butcher animals in the African savannah. Now they're not, they didn't go from gatherers to hunter gatherers at that point. They went from gatherers to gather scavenger gatherers because they weren't killing these animals. The tools they were making were not lethal to be able to kill big animals. What they used these tools for was for scavenging the meat off of the carcasses left behind from big predators on the savannah that made a kill, ate the blood, the fat, and the organs, went off to sleep and digest that meal and left all this meat hanging. So they ran in there with this with this sharp tool made out of a rock and you know joined the buzzards and the hyenas that are, you know, that are picking at this flesh and they're hacking off pieces of meat too. So when they do that, they start ingesting higher quality nutrition that is a little bit easier for their bodies to access the nutrients out of. And that's great, but we don't see a huge change then. We introduce some meat, a little bit of body and brain growth, but not much. It isn't until two million years ago, about a million and a half years after we get meat into our diets, that we invent technologies that allow our ancestors to hunt and take animals down at will. And this is a very significant moment because it's then that they are the predators and they have first access to any part of that animal they want. They're, they're not eating the leftovers from another predator. They are the predator. So they have access to the blood, the fat, the organs, and the meat, and the marrow, all the different parts of the animal. And it's, it, it's that technological development, all the good stuff, along with they, we think we develop, they developed fire at the same time, cooking technology that really allowed our bodies and our brains to get the nutrition they need to grow to almost modern proportions. But remember, all of that body and brain growth that's supported by that influx of nutrition was on the backs of those technologies. And it, the technological developments and the influx of nutrition at that time because of those technologies was so massive that not only did our bodies and our brains grow, but our guts shrank in relation to that size. I mean, if you, and our guts and our teeth shrank in relation to that size, which is crazy because you would think if we needed more nutrition to fuel these bodies and these brains that everything that we had that allowed us to get nutrition from food would get bigger as well. But it didn't because it didn't need to. We were so efficient at using these tools and doing things to food before we put it into our mouths that we didn't require these big, massive teeth and these big, you know, these big, massive guts. So as our bodies and brains grew, our nutritional requirements skyrocketed, our our technologies, you know, and, and food processing strategies were you know in, in check and, and, and going right along the same, but our guts and our teeth were shrinking. So right now we are at a state where our nutritional requirements are so high that if I stripped you of all your technologies and stuck you out in the middle of the woods naked and said, eat, and you knew, and you even knew all the behavior patterns of animals, you knew which plants were poisonous and which were safe and all, if you knew all that, you would still eventually die of starvation unless you made different kinds of tools and cooked food and did, you know, did, did different kinds of things. And that's, you know, that's why the, the modern industrial food system isn't even giving you just raw examples of food. They're taking raw ingredients, stripping them of, of nutrition in many ways and giving you this, you know, dumbed down version of this food. And here we are trying to feed ourselves. It's no, you know, it's, they've done such an amazing, the modern industrial food system has done such an amazing job of that, that, it had now in the first time ever in the history of the world has created obesity and malnutrition in the same person. Like it should be, first of all, it should be impossible to be obese because if you're eating the right amount of food, the right kind of food, you get satiated and you get full and whatever. But if you can get 
become obese and be malnourished at the same time. It really speaks to the the flaws in, in that system. Boy, it really does. So the modern food system today is not doing us any favors. We're sicker than we've ever been. I don't want to get cancer again. What do I do? <laughs> well, the, this is, this is, this, I, I have, I have a PhD in archaeology and obviously I'm not a, a medical doctor, but I'll tell you what I have learned from, <laughs> um, what I've learned from looking at the archaeological record in depth at, at the way that we've eaten in the past, um, one, I do believe that in, uh, industrial nut and seed oils are one of the most evil things on the planet at the moment. Um, and we have made a uh, conscious effort at home that we have, we've, there's no industrial nut and seed oils in our house. And here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, we, we and, and listen, we have a full-fledged running restaurant that nourishes the community. We have no industrial nut and seed oils in these walls at all either. Uh, so that, I think, is incredibly important. The second thing, if you look at the archaeological record, and this is not news to probably most of the people listening to this, but we introduce animal fat into our diet. The first evidence for it is 3.4 million years ago. We find bones of large, long bones of large mammals intentionally crushed. And yes, we can actually tell when they're intentionally crushed open with different tools, but intentionally crushed open to access the marrow on the inside. We have that evidence for animal fat, high quality animal fat in the form of bone marrow in our diets for three and a, almost three and a half million years. Industrial nut and seed oils have been in our diets for, you know, about 150, right around, give or take, about 150. And, and I like to look at that kind of thing to, to help. Uh, sugar is another, you know, so the, the first thing that I would tell anybody, the first thing I do tell people is the big, one of the easiest changes to make is to get rid of all the industrial nut and seed oils, get them out of your cupboard, get them out of your closet, throw them away. Don't, don't worry about throwing away food. It's not food. I mean, when, when you, I, I know we hate to waste things today, but when you, when you, when your perspective of what nourishing food is and everything else is, you know, you have those two categories, the everything else part, get rid of it. <laughs> get rid, just get it out. If you, if you want to put it where it belongs, put the nut and seed oils in the garage because they were all originally lubricants for, for machines. Put them all in, in the garage. Um, the second thing is sugar. If you look at sugar, um, again, if you look about from an ethnographic viewpoint to other cultures around the world and from a prehistoric viewpoint, sugar was something we just didn't, didn't have in, in, in our diets. And when it was there, it was at a very, very, very low level. Uh, when I was with the Hudson, Tanzania, there was a, a, a moment where we went and harvested some, some honey from a stingless beehive. And it was, you know, as much as it would fit in my hand. And everybody came out. Everybody was excited because that's like the only sugar they're going to have for the entire month. And everybody had some and it was great. And they went off and then they didn't, they literally had no sugar for weeks after that. So this is our take on sugar. If anybody's interested, number one, I have no, no um, patience for fake sugar related things at all. Uh, I've been down that road. And we, so we don't use any refined sugars whatsoever in our house or here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. We don't use any fake sugars either. So our take on it is this. If we're going to have something sweet, we might as well get something good out of it too. So we use completely unrefined sugars. So, um, uh, so there's a type of sugar called muscovado, which is nothing but uh, press the cane uh, juice out of the sugar cane and let it evaporate. So it's still full of all the minerals, still full of all the flavor. Yes, it's sugar, but you at least get a little bit of nutrition from it and a whole bunch of flavor that you don't get in refined sugar. We use honey, 
and we use maple syrup. Not a lot of it, but we do. I mean, there is that modern, I mean, we are modern humans. If, if you say don't eat any sugar ever, you might be able to hang on to it for a month. Then you're going to fall down that Oreo crack and eat one and then eat the entire package. So we, we do that. The other thing that uh, we do, and I think this is incredibly important, is we do practice a complete nose to tail approach to animals. And we do this for a lot of different reasons. Um, this is a win-win across the board. Number one, from a nutritional perspective, I mentioned it earlier, um, not only do we only consume by weight, typically in, in America, half of the animal, but the half that we don't consume is has a lot more nutrition in it than the half we do. So by including the entire animal, we more than double the nutrition that's coming out of a single animal. From an ethical perspective and from a sustainability perspective, harvesting an animal and getting more than double the nutrition out of that animal to feed myself and my family and my community sits a lot better with me than throwing half of it away or disposing of half or a half goes to pet food or, or wherever that other half is going. I um, grew up plucking chickens, so I completely understand that as well. When you bring in this boneless, skinless chicken breast, I say boneless, skinless, tasteless. Like it just, it just doesn't taste like when I grew up. And so the more we can eat the whole animal, I think the better off we're going to be. But I'm sure there's also confusion for people. And this is what I'd love you to speak to. They want to take a couple of steps. Mm-hmm. Where's a good place for them to start? One of the one of the problems we see with people that are that are really excited about taking this very important step towards uh, a more um, ancestrally based diet or, 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 or lifestyle in general is to try to do everything at the same time, and it's overwhelming to do it that way. To to take certain steps, sort of very um, measured steps, gives you a, a, a lot of opportunities. Number one, to give yourself a break. Number two, to realize that every step you take is a step in the right direction. It's, it's a positive step. And even if it's the tiniest, smallest step, those small steps build up day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year and make incredibly huge impacts over the long term. Um, so my book, Eat Like a Human, uh, outlines a whole bunch of information about our ancestral diets and then breaks down in each chapter um, different food categories, uh, grains, animals, plants, maize, all sorts of things. Um, talks a little bit about the increasing nutritional uh, bi- uh, uh, density and, and bioavailability and safety in our foods. And then it has a whole bunch of recipes. In fact, that book was written uh, because I wanted to share how we learn to nourish our family with the world. So Bill, I mean, again, for people who maybe are just thinking, where do I start? I normally shop at my local supermarket. Yeah, if milk is something, and we didn't even get a chance, unfortunately, to talk about milk, but milk is a foundational food. Milk is literally the one thing that the, we, we spent this entire time talking about all the foods that we eat that our bodies are not designed to consume. Milk is the one food that humans are 100% designed to efficiently and safely derive nutrition from for a short period of time when we're infants. Then we lose a lot of that ability. But high quality raw milk that's been fermented is replicating a lot of what happened in our digestive tracts as infants. And that is something we do include in our diet. So really high quality cheese, really high quality kefir, really high quality yogurt. These are foods that I believe are absolutely incredible. Um, Raw milk is unfortunately very... Um, um, illegal in many parts of this country. A great resource for raw milk is the Weston Price Foundation. Um, and they and they have uh, real, I think it's called realmilkfinder.org, but they can tell you 
where in the country you can legally get milk. And there's a lot of great information about uh, raw milk and a lot of great information about that as well. There are farm directories in a, a lot of different states. A lot of them are using great GIS software to help you connect with farmers. But farmers markets, I mean, there's nothing more the only thing more visceral, right, and connective than going to a farmer's market is actually being a farmer or raising animals or going hunting or going foraging yourself. And I couldn't agree more. I never miss my local farmer's market. I shake hands. I kiss babies. <laughs> I do all the things. And I live in Seattle where it's raining mm-hmm. all the time. And I go rain or shine because they are there. They're growing food of such a high nutrient density that Consuming that food is is almost like taking a vitamin pill. Well, Dr. Bill Schindler, I just want to thank you for coming on my podcast. Why did I get cancer? Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. A lot of you have been asking me about the products I use on my face. Um, I've never, I've never been one to get a lot of compliments on my skin. But I tell you, since I switched over to this product, it's been about 10 years now, I get so many compliments on my skin and I want to keep that going. So Body Deli is what I use. It's a small company out of Palm Springs, California. They grow a lot of their own produce that they then end up turning into products for your face. Non-toxic. I mean, honestly, my skin just eats it up. So there's a couple of products that I absolutely love. I've tagged them in the show notes. One is the Phoenix Skin and Neck Oil. I mean, I'm at that age. I need to focus on these things. And I tell you, if I don't use this every night, my skin gets so dry. And then the Vitamin C Serum. I tell you, whenever I put it on my skin, I feel like it is, it's just like taking this amazing vitamin and my skin just looks better. Um, I get compliments. As I said, my skin kind of just, you know, glows even when I'm not wearing makeup. So I'm a huge fan of Body Deli. Um, Again, the link is in the show notes. Use the code ENOS15 and uh, get 15% off of your purchase. Again, one of my favorite companies and I hope you enjoy the products as much as I do. Thank you for joining me today on the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I've got my shopping guide for all of my cancer self-care items in the show notes, along with information about today's guest and our show sponsors. And don't forget to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. Keep in mind, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a gal that got diagnosed with cancer and wanted answers. If you need medical advice, please be sure to consult with a medical professional. And thank you for listening.